You are listening to Herpes 101, the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Richard Mancuso, and thank you for joining me. So today, I'm going to be talking about the stigma on herpes. Now, a great deal of what I will be talking about may be of a sensitive nature to some who are listening. So before we begin, I need to tell you that we will be talking about sex and challenging old ideas and preconceived notions that many of us may have. While some ideas presented may cause some feelings, some head tilts, and possibly even some triggers, it's also possible that you may even disagree with a few of the ideas presented, and that's okay. I simply ask that if you do feel anything, that you hang in there, because I think as we go along that you may have some moments of, oh, I see... And uh, I would like to mention a great deal of this conversation is on the stigma is directly from my book. So if you use any of it or share any of it, please quote me accordingly. What is the stigma? Is it a cloud that hangs over your head? Is it a feeling? Is it a monster under your bed? Well, let's start with the definition and see if you agree. Herpes stigma, an application of words, thoughts, and actions that leave a negative or derogatory mark of disapproval. Sounds pretty simple, right? This so-called mark or stigma is created by the application of shame, but is deeply rooted with many other contributing pieces to a much larger puzzle. These contributing factors or puzzle pieces are rooted in many misconceptions and misplaced judgments, all caused by the lack of proper education and empathy. Not to mention the many misinformed opinions and sexual bias from doctors, the medical community, outdated data, and friends and relatives. These negative applications also cause a large disconnect between the patient and the medical community, which often end with a great deal of mistrust towards medical professionals. An example of this would be a great deal of people refusing to get the COVID vaccine because of what they heard on the internet. It's quite clear that education has stumbled, and it's evident that children, or even some adults, were not taught properly on how to research and discern factual information from fiction. But that's a whole nother story altogether. When people talk about the shame of herpes and the stigma, I think what they're really talking about is a narrative that is very old and deeply rooted in our human history and our human sexuality. You may not be aware of how deep the rabbit hole goes, but the big slap in the face is, without us even being aware, we were taught to feel this way. We were taught to think that herpes is bad and the end result of breaking some made-up rules. We were taught that if you got herpes, it was because you had sex out of marriage, or you're a cheater, or you're a whore, or you're a slut, or many other stupid idioms that you may have heard. Well, guess what? It's time to unlearn what you have learned. While the stigma can be viewed as much as a large puzzle with many contributing pieces, many may, say this, many may see the stigma 
many, <laughs> let me try that again. Many may see the stigma as a construct, one that we allow and is a conscious and sometimes unconscious placing of shame that we apply towards each other. It's more interesting that much of this shame is quite old and it's rooted in archaic beliefs about our own sexuality. So is the stigma on herpes just the good old stigma on sex that is now applied towards engaging in sexual activity or is it very complicated? Or is it something much simpler? Some of you may have read that a great deal of people believe that the stigma began when antivirals were invented. Well, I agree it was a, a moment of importance, much like pouring gas on a already smoldering fire. I wouldn't put all the blame on just this one singular moment. Antivirals were made available in the early 80s, and the company who invented them, Burroughs Welcome, was not selling this product at the level they had hoped for. Because of this, they began an extremely conservative campaign, and with the added attempt to squash the free love and sex of the 70s. But changing the narrative from who cares about herpes into Oh my God, I have herpes. I don't want everyone to know. This raised sales considerably. This conservative sex campaign was in the news. It was in newspapers and in a few magazines. Time Magazine for one. I believe it was called the Scarlet Letter. One of the largest key components or contributing factors of the stigma is the archaic views of human sexuality and the shame that is used as a tool of control. This is followed by the fear and the fear of rejection. That is a narrative that is propagated by traditions, cultures, belief systems, and social media. If you don't believe me, think about your family and pretend for a moment you're sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner or just a big meal with family and friends and you start talking about your herpes <laughs> or even your favorite toy to use during masturbation. Or, <laughs> pretend for a moment you are at your place of worship. This could be a synagogue, a church, a mosque, or just a building. And you stand up in the middle of service and start talking about your favorite sexual position. Or telling people that you have genital herpes. Imagine for a moment the responses that you will get. And the fact that you may even be physically removed from the building. I know this is a bit extreme, but think about it, right? Why all of this control on sex? The one thing that everybody does. Fear and rejection seem to come to mind, don't they? And if that wasn't shocking enough, the stigma is also pushed even further by us and our own feelings. Our emotions of rejection are a leftover part of an evolutionary trait that we experience within our brains. And it's one that started more than 50,000 years ago. As human beings, most of us have an intrinsic need to be wanted. Sounds pretty normal. It is simply a part of who we are. So when it comes to rejection, there are many who do not take this very well. There are many different reasons for our reactions, but it is still it, it still infers the question, why does it hurt so much? Well, it's because the same areas of our brain that become active when we experience physical pain are the same areas of our brain that become active when we experience rejection. 
This is why the pain of rejection can be pretty intense for many people and why these feelings are very, very, very real. Some experts and evolutionary psychologists believe the fear of rejection is an evolutionary part of human survival. They also believe that this response is in place to basically protect us. The need to be liked and accepted is, in a sense, a need to remain part of the proverbial island and part of the group. There's power in numbers, and remaining within the group can also allow one to not just survive, but to also pass on their genes to future generations. Thousands of years ago, being kicked off the island and left to one's own devices would typically be a death sentence. Still, if you're on an island with a group of people who are working together, this scenario clearly provides much higher odds of survival and the passing on of one's genetic lineage. So even though the fear of rejection can be negative and painful, it can still be a learning experience. So you're not being a baby or a wimp because you feel these feelings. It's actually a normal response. So let's fast forward a little bit. Many of us have been taught to feel bad about sex. You have been taught that sex is bad unless you follow certain rules. Crazy, right? Within a great deal of these misguided lessons is the unfair double standard that if you're a guy, it's okay to have sex, but if you're a woman, you're a whore. This is really stupid. Anyway, I know it is a lot to unpack. So, let's begin. Let's think of the stigma as a coin with two sides. For the moment, we will be talking about one side, a side with many pieces. It's clear that we understand shame, or in the least, we are familiar with that gut feeling. But when discussing herpes and being taught that you did something bad, but there's many contributing factors as well that we need to consider. So we have shame, we have perceptions, we have society and culture, we have religion and beliefs, words and phrases that we use, silence, priorities in the medical community, testing in the CDC, and of course, social media. We already kind of covered shame, so let's go on to perceptions. Many people have a perception or an idea about a topic, even if they do not know anything about it. Something they heard, something from a friend, had said in the past, or even an anecdote that was handed down from a friend or a grandparent. Even a nice, happy political debate at Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> ah, so much fun. Everyone has opinions. There's no denying that. All you must do is go on Facebook for five minutes and you will get a heavy dose of topics like religion, politics, or which cat is the cutest. They are all covered by opinions, biased, informed, or not. Just ask a question and you will get a barrage of answers. Even people who know nothing about herpes already have an idea about it based on jokes, stories, or childhood memories from health class. Unfortunately, some of what they say about herpes is correct. When someone says it's contagious, you can get blisters and it can be possibly painful. We cannot say that they are lying. This doesn't always happen, but I really wish I could change that fact. Because getting around these facts is difficult for me and for so many others. If you're going to change the stigma of herpes, we must change its perceptions. This also means we need to change the perception of those who have herpes and those who do not all the while realizing that the facts do not change. But the many myths around them certainly do. For instance, the notion that only dirty, unhygienic people can get herpes is false. 
it's more likely that you caught a staph infection, ringworm, or fungal infection from your failure to wash your hands and touching your genitals. So over 90% of humans have at least one or more of the nine herpetic infections. I mean, we're talking four plus billion people for just type one. And when it comes to sexual behavior, hypocrisy always comes to the forefront. Sex is always on people's minds these days, and pointing the finger of blame has become a staple of society. Now, I'm sure that you have heard on numerous occasions of adults and even teenagers having sex for the first time and getting herpes while using protection. It's true, and it does happen often. Does this make any of them bad people? No. No, it doesn't. People have always had sex and will continue to do so. People always make mistakes, make bad choices, and... Even though sex is not always a bad choice, but why should sex be any different? Misguided perceptions and the people who speak with unearned confidence by the way of jokes, anecdotes, or insults that are deeply rooted in hearsay and conjecture show that we need to be cautious and skeptical of these societal common opinions. Opinions about herpes may or may not be true, but many are rooted in the clever yet biased rhetoric of a person's perception. We do not know the perspective of another individual unless we put ourselves in their position. And it's easy to go negative, be angry, place the blame on the ignorant and misinformed masses. However, if we are going to change the stigma that is placed on herpes, we must change the perception of those living with it and be honest about the facts of its transmission and its manifestations regardless of how unpopular they are. Society and Culture a group of individuals who are united by a network of social relations, traditions, and may have distinct culture and institutions or other manifestations of human intellect achievement. That's the basic definition. So in a world with so many different political views, religions, societies, cultures, and so many different traditions, it sometimes feels like mm, we still live under a rock when it comes to understanding human sexuality. Throughout the world, there exists a wide variety of views on human sexual behavior and sexuality. Many that exist are quite archaic, at least from my perspective. In many cultures, sex is viewed solely as means for reproduction. Other cultures believe that it must be sanctioned by a religion before you can engage in it. And that to speak of it publicly will bring about scorn and disapproval from your peers and elders. Regardless of where you live, you can view drastic differences in how sexuality and sexual behavior is viewed. The accepted norms vary widely throughout the world. You, you have female genitalia mutilation, which is a norm in some cultures. It makes the news, there's a public outcry against it, and they begin campaigns and they try to stop it. And sometimes they do, they're very successful. Conversely, the act of circumcising young male infants is heralded as an acceptable norm, despite no evidence of its value other than aesthetics. Therefore, perspective is important. Religion and beliefs. So much has been written in regards to religion and sexuality, it would be arrogant of me to assume that I could summarize it neatly in this little section. However, many of the world's organized religions share a view of human sexuality that is very oppressive. 
It's heavily entrenched in guilt, in shame, misogyny, empowered by fear and oppression. I apologize if that statement causes you to feel angry or uncomfortable. And I acknowledge that there are those who take comfort from the structure that organized religion provides. I simply ask that you allow me to offer a viewpoint you may or may not be aware of. Many of these belief systems were rooted in the human desire to comprehend the world around them. And the fear of wrath from a deity served as the role in the development of belief systems throughout the major world religions. Since religion must be taken on faith, fear of damnation is often a tool that is used to manipulate its followers into conformity. Much has been written in social psychology about the use of fear as a tool to manipulate and control populations. This has been done through history by dictators and despots. Through research and questioning, one begins to see how organized religion plays an integral part in applying religious dogma and judgments on sexuality and sexual behavior. The earlier roots of many religions often celebrate the human physical form, fertility, and yes, even the orgasm. Our historical past is filled with sexual laws and regulations riddled with moral judgments and contradictions, some that make sense and others do not. Most of these laws were stolen, borrowed, and completely plagiarized from other cultures. Additionally, it is evident that there is no shortage of judgment with regard to sexual behavior and human reproduction. This judgment is not universal among all religions. The idea of killing is wrong, but the ritual sacrifice of a virgin to ensure a fruitful spring crop was sometimes deemed acceptable? The contradictions are endless. One could write volumes on rape culture and the depiction of women as chattel, found in many world religions, but that is best served for another author. Still, these archaic views on human sexuality played a heavy role in influencing many different religious beliefs in what is tolerated and what is not acceptable. Even today, there are still many religious sects that hide sexual assaults behind their doctrine of a wife's submission to her husband. The application of virginity and the idea of what may be considered purity cannot be discussed without mentioning the Madonna-Whore dichotomy. This classically studied social dichotomy examines how the roles of women are often divided into two polar opposites. She's either the good girl, the Madonna, or the slut, the whore. A peer-reviewed study was performed and they found some fascinating results. Heterosexual men found favor with this gender inequality and often used the term whore towards women to impose control over their choices with their sexuality or power within the community or even the workplace. While shaming women for enjoying sex may seem absurd, we see this act played out everywhere, globally, on social media, even on TV. The idea of being pure and innocent, all due to remaining a virgin because of a piece of skin, is a common theme within many religious belief systems, old and new. Many women experience this inequality between the genders daily, and yes, there are even those who contribute to this dichotomy by ostracizing and calling another woman names and castigating them for engaging in sexual behavior. It's not just men who are applying this shame to women. All genders are capable of criticizing others who do not conform with their ideologies, which are based on their belief systems. 
Now, one could argue that the sole purpose of this name-calling is subjugation and power over one labeled as unworthy or whore. When you throw the accusation of contracting herpes into the mix, well, you can see how deep the rabbit hole starts to go. Let's talk about words and phrases. The language that we choose to use is personal. Whether it is your personal choice of pronouns, how you refer to your ethnicity, or even how you view your, di- your, your, your health diagnosis, I think these discussions are important and actually need to happen. It, it shows the ability to be compassionate to other perspectives and that it is the best way to destigmatize this sexually transmitted infection. I would caution people not to lightly say it's not a big deal especially when you're talking with a newly infected person. This phrase is often thrown around so much so that I feel that many have not given it that much thought and have accepted it simply because it sounds nice. While these few words are used in many conversations to make a person feel better or are said to another person who is distraught after finding uh, finding out about a, a new diagnosis, this really isn't what someone needs to hear. In the past, I was just as guilty. However, I have spent a lot of time speaking with newly infected people, some who are at times inconsolable. Saying it's not a big deal as a blanket statement about herpes totally dismisses the many millions of people who suffer daily. It ignores their situation, it dissolves their personal reality with their individual pain, and while it is easy to simply disregard my interpretation of this as ridiculous or extreme, It's just as easy to deny someone's grief and say it's no big deal. I don't feel it is the right thing to say anymore, especially right after a new infection. But that's just me. I would ask you to think about this and perhaps instead simply say, I know what you are going through right now feels like a big deal. And for the moment, it is a big deal. And that's okay. When I was first diagnosed, I felt the same way, but in time it will get better and who knows. You may never get another outbreak again, and one day it may not be a big deal for you. It's just a rash. Here's another nugget of freaking intellect that is thrown around often on social social media, in private groups, and on TV by some who even claim to be a doctor or have a medical degree. I imagine a few of us have heard this from doctors themselves, and at least once or twice in your lifetime. In addition to my previous points about lumping everyone into the same group with a blanket statement, I do not feel this statement is correct or even scientifically accurate. Herpes simplex virus is not a rash. It is a viral infection of the nervous system. Stating facts about HSV is not fun. I hate it, but we must be honest to move on from it. While many definitions list a rash as an area of redness or swelling, or the result of an allergic reaction, it must be remembered that herpes is not an allergic reaction. While herpes does manifest itself with symptoms that may be construed as rash-like, it is a viral infection. It is not a skin condition. Your skin is the largest organ that you have, and when we compare it to other organs, is herpes a vagina condition? Is it a penis condition? Is it a mouth condition? I would argue not. That I would argue that it's not a skin condition. 
When it comes to words and phrases, we need to be more cognizant or aware of what we are saying. Words can be immensely powerful and leave lasting impressions. So in our attempts to help others get through a difficult situation, we may be inadvertently planning the wrong idea of how to deal with herpes. I would like to ask the reader and the listener to consider the above when speaking about herpes or consoling others with herpes. I would also ask that we consider the perspective of the other person when hearing words that inflame or cause a reaction in us. The word trigger comes to mind. Silence. This is one of my favorite sections because it is one of the biggest fuels to the fire. For example, all of these puzzle pieces we have discussed are like pieces of wood. Silence would be a small container of gas. Sometimes silence is golden and sometimes it's debilitating. I understand this all too well because it froze me solid for 30 years. Many who are like me can easily comprehend how we can suffer from a desire to remain on mute and it can make you feel like a prisoner in your own mind. However, no longer remaining silent can become an easy task if no one is worried about what others think or if you can abandon any possible consequences of saying the word herpes out loud and do so with little or no regret. Trust me when I say it can be cathartic. Blurting out the word herpes is not without its difficulty. I guess an example of this kind of difficulty would be walking across the country barefoot. Sure, it can be done, but the choice to make this journey will not be easy for many. It will be physically grueling and mentally exhausting, not to mention the possibility of being very cold and having a very alone existence. Even with a basic understanding of how the stigma of herpes can silence and influence our actions, its revelation to others is personal and can be frightening. I understand that asking people to say I have herpes out loud is not an easy task. And for many, it's like opening Pandora's box. Once that box has been opened, there's no going back, ever. The secret is out, and anyone who decides to venture down this road must realize these facts before doing so. You may even lose a few friends in the process. But then again, they probably weren't really your friends. I'm not advocating for everyone to shout it from the mountaintop, or to even wear a scarlet H emblazoned on their chest. I understand that disclosure is a personal decision, and it's, nor is it my intent to make you feel shame for remaining silent. I understand that for some people, disclosure puts their personal safety at risk, and I can only advise you to seek the counsel of others who are knowledgeable to the best of your ability. It is my wish for you to contemplate what the ifs and the personal sufferings may be incurred by remaining silent. In the end, we have to realize a few truths. One is that you do not need sex to get herpes, and herpes is not always a sexually transmitted infection. Most infections that take place do so without showing any signs or symptoms whatsoever. So just because you may have experienced an outbreak, this does not always indicate that what you are seeing is a new exposure to the virus. Finger pointing doesn't work. Billions of people have herpes. Depending on what study you've read, the numbers are anywhere between 70 to 90% of the world walking around with herpes. So, we just spent a great deal of time discussing one side of the coin. 
But what about the other side of the coin? We clearly dove into the view that the stigma is not just one thing, or a singular idea, or a singular point in time. I like to think that I provided a compelling argument for the opposite. But what if there was a way to accept your diagnosis, to utterly defeat the stigma, at least for yourself? I personally believe that we may never defeat the stigma. However, we can endure it. This is because there will always be people who are stuck and unmoved in their personal views and regardless of any evidence or self-realization that their preconceived notions may be incorrect. They will never change their minds. We see this all the time with politics or even discussing religious beliefs. The other side of the coin is basically owning it. Not caring about what anyone else thinks or giving any effort to worrying about what other people say. Have you ever met someone who is so confident in who they are that they couldn't give a crap as to what others have to say? It has no effect on them or any effect on their growth. It's an amazing thing to watch. In conclusion, I know that I have given you a great deal to think about. Depending on what kind of a person you are or the person you decide to become, it's quite clear that the stigma on herpes is not as simple as we think. It is my hope that this information was helpful in some way and that it made understanding the stigma and your feelings about it a bit easier. And with any luck or hope, gave you some reasons to leave it behind so that you can move forward and move towards acceptance. So I'd like to thank you for listening. That's all the time I have for this episode. Although I could probably go on for another three hours. <laughs> Either way, thanks for listening. You are listening to Herpes 101, the podcast.